Good afternoon, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. It's office hours with me and my mentor, learn.blainbartlett.com forward slash LMM. He's the mindset mastermind taking control of the mind, the heart, and the handset practical advice. And speaking of all three of those realms, we are so blessed to have Kendra Hall here. Uh, And he is the chief storytelling officer of Success Magazine. And what I love about that and her new book um, is that I believe life is about lessons. And the way that we teach and tell lessons is through stories. And not only stories we tell others, but even more importantly, the stories that we tell ourselves. And we need to choose our own stories, uh, both externally and internally. And that's truly what your book is about, Kendra, uh, understanding not only the stories that we tell ourselves and others, but how uh, we tell them uh, is so important. And so, uh, you know, as the chief storytelling officer of an amazing publication and a great author, you know, how did you figure out this idea of stories and lessons and how they contribute and impact our lives? Yeah, I had, I was one of those people who that my career found me, right? Like I didn't find it, it found me. And I was, it was at the end of my high school career and I entered a national storytelling competition. Yes, they have. Wow. And I, Damn, I missed out. I know. Who knew? Here, yeah. Wow. Who knew? Who knew? But I entered and I won. Now I was 18. I was hoping there would be like a car or um, like some a cash prize, but it wasn't the big prize. Was you got to tell a story at the National Storytelling Festival, which again you may or may not know that there is one of those. Um, but I remember going to this festival. It happens in this teeny tiny town in Tennessee, and they put up these huge circus tents and they bring in professional storytellers. Now these aren't business people. They they are really people who are there, who have the natural ability to see life's moments, as we're talking about here, and and see the true purpose in them, the value in them. So I was sitting in the audience under these circus tents, listening to these storytellers, and not only blown away by how the stories were uniting an entire audience, but also fascinated and really intrigued and also very excited about their seeing these really small moments from, from in some cases, decades ago, maybe it was the show and tell day in second grade and telling a whole story about it and how that brings so much meaning to our lives. So I think that's when I first realized there is something really amazing here. And ever since then, I've been researching and studying and teaching the power of stories, both outward stories that we tell and the stories we tell ourselves. Wow. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I, the title of your book struck me when I first saw it. Choose your story, change your life, and it intrigued me for this reason. You know, everybody's got a story, and everybody is a story. Yeah, you know, whether you're a company or whether you're an individual. And in the work that I do with leaders, you know, it became very obvious real early on in my work with them that the story of who they are gets in the room before they do. And then people spend you know, probably 90% of the meeting interacting with that story before they ever get to the person that <laughs> is, is carrying that story. Mm-hmm. Disabusing other people of the validity of that story 
is oftentimes a lot of the work that I end up doing uh, because that story doesn't serve anymore, which is the last part of that title. Yeah, change your life, change your story, change your life. How difficult do you find it to be to change the story? And I'm, you know, I ask this out of curiosity. I've spent probably 30 years working with people to do this. So mm -hmm. I love you know, somebody that is steeped in this to actually comment on this. It's been, it's been fascinating because it can be varied. So if, if there's a belief that you have about yourself and it's, it's really rooted within you and it's something that you've held on to and you've been collecting evidence, memories of previous experiences or things that happen in your day to day, and it's all gathered together, I call it kind of the mass of the iceberg that's underneath the surface of the water. Mm -hmm. So we, it's in our subconscious, um, sometimes really big stories take time to shift and change and and get to that place where they're actually serving us. So I, I had a limiting story for a long time that um, was really robbing me of professional excellence and happiness. And that was that anytime my career was thriving, um, it meant that I was failing as a mother. And so I went through a whole period where my career was and it's still, you know, it's great. But when it was just taking off and I, I could barely enjoy it because every time it did, I, I was thinking I'm failing my kids. And I had all these stories about how I had failed my kids, things that I'd missed, things that I didn't do. I also had all the stories of the mother I had whose entire goal and ambition was to be home with us. So now I'm doing something the opposite. It was, it was such a mess. Um, and it took a lot of time and effort for me to pinpoint very specific moments as a mother where I was actually doing awesome and retelling myself those stories on a regular, anytime I felt that uh, old story coming up to quiet it with these other stories that could bring it back down. It took a couple it of years to get that under control. Now I feel pretty good about it. I've also seen people who had a, story that they figured out they didn't even know they'd been telling themselves and it was such it, it could be an instantaneous change oh that story's wrong i have this story instead i'm going to choose this one and it's over so it, it's varied it depends on how big how old um what area of life the stories are and kimbra one of the other interesting things you had your first bestseller which was stories that stick mm -hmm. and we're talking mm -hmm. about the conscious and subconscious level of stories and what impact they have on us and what limitations they put on us because of what we've told ourselves. One of the interesting things that as I get older and more experienced that I'm studying is the energetic and genetic inheritance of stories, the unconscious competencies, a quantum mm -hmm. chain that people talk about breaking the chain of this. Um, it's so hard to raise our awareness especially if we're younger, we don't have repetition and experience and this quantum uh, ability that we have and disability. Um, how can we utilize the stories that we tell uh, in order to break this chain of the energetic and genetic inheritance of the unconscious realm uh, that some people don't even believe in, but I know in my heart and soul and mind are extremely influential in what I do internally and externally by looking at the patterns of my genetics and my energetic inheritance. 
Uh, well, first of all, will you please send me what you have, what you've been looking at? Because I just, as I was working on this, I'm like, there is a whole other realm here that I want to, that I'm curious about. I'm like, wait a second. I think there's, there's a lot more, right? I'm like, there, I, we're, we're at one point, but I think it's something either deeper or broader. Um, so please send me mm -hmm. that, that information for anyone who's for skeptical of that what I would say about this approach, this methodology, um, and what I appreciate about, appreciate it about, appreciate about it for myself is this is very, what we're looking for are concrete stories. They aren't, they're, they're things that we, that we have experienced. They, they are actual events. There may be events from our past that we remember. They may be um, stories that are happening right here in front of us. If you, if you have a limiting story that the world is out to get you, um, and some people carry that story with them, right? And that can be handed down in a variety of different ways. The world is out to get me. The world is out to get me. Maybe that story served you for a while. Maybe it no longer does. If you're ready to change that, then to be looking around and say, oh, that person is actually there to support me. I'm going to I'm going to solidify this person who came out of nowhere to help me with this situation. And I'm going to retell myself this story to help alleviate some of the, the previous ones. So if you're someone who so like that, it's something you can't see, it's too far out there, you need something more concrete, that's what these stories are all about. And it will help make that progress regardless. You know, I, you know the, the epigenetical you know, co construct that David's talking about there is is very powerful, and I'm going to just take that and, and go a little bit more meta with it <clears throat> in the context of business. Um, you know, this book over my shoulder here, David and I co-wrote this, "Compassionate Capitalism," and the story about capitalism, and this is yeah, compassionate capitalism strikes people as an oxymoron. Uh, how can <laughs> capitalism yeah. be compassionate? Well, there's a story embedded in the way that people think about business today that is not serving anybody. So I'm, I'm curious in terms of some of the, you know, the, the, cause you work with some fairly large companies. Yes. Yeah. From a strategic perspective, positioning their story as a go to market you know, strategy. What are you noticing that companies are wanting to have crafted and how, how, how much of their DNA is actually uh, either facilitating or compromising a different story that uh, might be more in alignment with a compassionately capitalistic approach to doing business. I think that anytime, so now they, there is a lot more awareness of the importance of storytelling in a go-to-market strategy, right? Like this is how the big brands um, become who they are. And I think that where, you know, we have, we have to, all of my work has been in true stories. Um, it always needs to be about the true stories. And you can see when there is an organization there that maybe isn't uh, compassionate, um, it is difficult. Like the stories don't always align. And when they start trying to create fiction, uh, that becomes even more problematic. My recommendation always for an organization and the many that I've worked with is when looking for a story to communicate what you're really about, um, instead of going big and broad and trying to encompass and share all the values, 
to go back to one moment in time, the, the moment the realization happened that this is something that could be something and, and to focus on that piece of the story, because I think with any company, companies start for a reason. Uh, there's yeah. a problem that needs to be solved. There's a, there's a, you know, like, just like, you know, children are born into the world. There's the twinkle in the eye, right? Like what? And so yeah. um, I think that then on the other side of it, the companies that aren't willing to share those, the more personal stories of their capitalistic endeavors are the ones that then are perceived as uncompassionate. They're not compassionate, right? But there's so much human in business and that humanness lives in the true stories. Now, of course, the stories can be abused. We've we've seen that happen even recently where there was a lot of storytelling happening um, that didn't all add up and there were consequences for that. But the and of course, I need to read your book now. I want to see it even more of a compassionate. Yeah, if, if, you, if you need a nap, you can read our book. And I oh hey hey. hey. <laughs> but the, the compassion, the compassion of capitalism happens because of the humans in the work, right? Yeah. And so the only way to bring the humanness out again then is to share the stories of the humans who are doing the work that is driven by compassion. You're amazing, Kendra. And next time that we have you on, because we have so much more to explore. Um, and, you know, we have Cossum, the awesome Cossum in the waiting room, or I, I would delve into this whole side, but I think it warrants you coming back is, mm -hmm. you know, I love when we take something ethereal, like chief storytelling officer, implement it into Success Magazine and as a stellar collective, which you're the president of and the chief storytelling uh, officer. But you know, how do we convey the value of storytelling to the Fortune 500? You know, in I think a lot of entrepreneurs have these ethereal ideas that have quantitative value. And I think through your own personal storytelling technique, you also can articulate quantitative value uh, that, you know, at the biggest yeah. resistance level, which is the Fortune 500, the Tysons and Targets and Berkshire, mm -hmm. And even Harvard Med School, which has to be completely skeptical, beyond Facebook slash Meta and Hilton. Uh, I want to have you back to talk about quantitatively mm -hmm. how we can articulate that value to the biggest resistant forces of our capitalistic society. Because I can imagine I was just while you're talking and so eloquently, uh, you know, explaining what you do. I'm also from the corporate realm like you. And I'm thinking, man, if I was CEO of, you know, Starbucks and you know this woman came in to tell me about storytelling you know am I really spending my 15 minutes listening to this and how has she had you know the, the expansion and growth within the context and reconciliation of understanding so we'd like to have you back to discuss the more pragmatic side of business of what you do uh, but please everyone if you want to change people's lives, if you want to change your own life, if you want to change your business and silence the inner, inner, inner critics, rewrite your own stories inside and out, please buy Choose Your Story, Change Your Life by the incredible Kendra Hall. Thank you for joining us, Kendra. Thanks for having me, guys. I can't wait to chat again. We will. Thank you. Thanks, Kendra. Take care. What a great, what a great uh, interview and great impact. So I love that. Man. I do too. 
you know, it's the safer side of things to create a show, Blaine, that, you know, you only give people 15 minutes uh, because I'd rather people beg for more like they're doing right now for Kendra <laughs> than sit there going, when are these guys going to finish? Uh, we're, we're, we're blessed that most of the people are like, hey, can we have her back? Um, you more, more. I want more. Speaking of which, wanting more, I'm so blessed to have Cossum here. Uh, she is just another extraordinary entrepreneur, CEO of Solutions 8. Uh, also, I've seen her um, with the traffic conver conversion crowd that I've been so closely aligned with throughout the years in digital marketing. And uh, she also has a book, The Seven Critical Principles of Effective Digital Marketing, and is one of the greatest digital marketers of our time. So we're blessed to have our friend uh, Kasim here with us. And uh, I hope my notes are right, Kasim, because he's, uh, uh, I, I read it as Kasim, but I, I heard was told by my group it's Kasim. Is, are you awesome, Kasim? Or it's awesome with a K, David. Nice. Yeah, appreciate y'all having me here. My dad wanted me beat up yeah. in high school, so he named me Kasim, and it worked. Yeah. It was you sure it worked, huh? yeah. It's like a boy named Sue, but less TSA friendly. So I get it you know, <laughs> from all angles. Yeah, well, you cannot sit with a better skill and knowledge base than that in digital marketing. And, you know, I have uh, been around you with the traffic and conversion crowd, and you have a legacy behind what you've been able to do. You know, my first question is, since you've been around this space so long, I don't think a lot of people understand the advancement that has occurred just in the last 24 months um understanding the business you know where you started the first time that i saw you uh to where we are today what has been the most substantial difference between even two years ago and today in you know that digital marketing space that you're an expert at we're finally seeing um we're finally seeing legislation with teeth you know, the Internet's been something of the wild, wild west for since the advent and the benefit we've had up until this point is and, you know, for, I'm not trying to throw barbs, but uh, it's nothing but a bunch of ger geriatric morons. Right. That are writing large. <laughs> no and, Blaine. Yeah. No. <laughs> what I mean is, is, is if you look at if you look at um, our legislators, they don't understand the Internet at all. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, go back and, and watch them trying to interrogate Zuckerberg. And, and you see that uh, pretty clearly. And what that means is for the longest time, they've been staying hands off. And recently, you know, when you see this in California with legislation there, GDPR in Europe, um, they're moving towards an attempt at putting boundaries, scaffolding, let's say, on the way that we interface with each other online. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I I'm for privacy, truly. And I think we've seen some some pretty significant negative impacts, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, a lot of the hacks that happened, personal information being exposed, et cetera. But, but... But the, the, but the way that they're approaching this is flawed <clears throat> because the, 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 the manner in which they're attempting to legislate is near impossible to be compliant with. GDPR is a good example. It is technically impossible to be compliant with GDPR. If you read the way the laws are written, you can't actually execute on what they're asking. You're, the, the, the European Union just declared Google Analytics is effectively illegal because of the way that it collects information, which is which is shocking. So you take that and you put it on a shelf. So we, we, we have to contend with the governments. Governments are actually pretty easy to contend with because they're big and they're bulky. And, you know, it's the Leviathan, but they, they, they're slow moving. And so, you know, it's just this big giant trying to crush you, but it's easy to get out of the way. Now, what's really interesting is there's the individual entities, companies that are it's they're, they're playing statecraft. 
So we saw Apple roll out something called iOS 14, which was an update where they, in one fail swoop, destroyed Facebook's entire marketing model. It was brilliant. It was a master stroke. And if you were to ask me, and I'm the, not the only one that thinks this, I think Apple's going to get into the ad game. And before they get into the ad game heavily, they just took out their second biggest competitor with one move, with one button. You now have to opt in for tracking. And the way that they ask for the opt-in too is brilliant. You know, they're like, hey, David, hey, Blaine, do you want Facebook to be able to see everything that you do? And you're like, of course I don't. No. <laughs> and, and, and up until this point, something to the tune of 85% of people have opted out of tracking. So Facebook used to be able to see what you did after you left Facebook. You click on an ad, you go to David's website, you read through a blog, check out a couple pages, and then you convert. Well, Facebook can see all of those things. Now, 85% of that data is gone. And with it, you, you we saw massive, just the, the, the annihilation of so many well-performing Facebook ad campaigns. Facebook wasn't the only one to suffer, but they were definitely the biggest. And then you've got Google's Flock, which is Federated Learning of Cohorts, which they just killed and replaced with the Topics API. Um, what's happening is these, these entities are realizing it does not behoove them to share data, visibility, access. And so you're seeing it's like an arms race. It's like an arms race, but with trillion-dollar corporations. And, and there's very distinct winners and losers. There's the reason that Facebook rebranded into Meta and is now pushing hardware so hard because they realize that as Facebook, they're a disembodied entity. You have to visit Facebook through a proxy, through a, a smartphone or a browser or a device. And if they don't own the device, they're always at the mercy of somebody else's pipe. So they're pushing Oculus. It's, it's also a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant move. They're pushing Oculus because they want to be able to own the origination of the view, but in, and I'm not answering your question, David. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. It's, there's, there's a lot that happened in the last 24 months, and I'm trying to condense it. Yeah, I know it's good. <laughs> what we're seeing yeah. is advertisers. You also, by the way, wait, Kasim, I just have to tell you, I, I talk too fast. To, no, no, no. We all talk fast. It's <laughs> product of thinking fast. But I'm going to say, Ben and I are sitting here because I have a new Apple TV deal, and I'm thinking, I think I went with the right horse. Oh, I goodness. Think so. Yeah, it's funny because Apple owns, and this, this is going to sound elitist, so everybody forgive me. They own the most valuable cohort, right? So like Android is the largest operating system on the planet, but Apple owns the buyers, the, the influentials, the people that actually move. So even though what, what Apple took away from Facebook was not the majority of the data, but it was the most important data set that anybody had. And it's why it, it, Facebook's entire algorithm changed. They used to have a 28-day click-through window that they had to drop down to seven. And now there's a three-day delay in their attribution. Three days in, in delay. And if that doesn't make sense to you, if you're listening, what that means is you have to wait three days to see the true impact of your ads, which yeah. I used to be able to make minute-by-minute minute changes. Now I got to sit here and twiddle my thumbs for 72 hours to see whether or not anything worked which is, it's a, it's a complete paradigm shift and change. As advertisers, for the last 15 years, we've been so spoiled. I used to be able to, I was, I had a sniper rifle up on the top of the roof, forgive the analogy, and you could say, hey, I want to target a blind, one-legged nun in Utah that watches Friends. And I'm like, awesome, cool. I can, I can advertise to that person <laughs> instantly. I, you know, I can find all three of them and put a, a message in front of them anytime that I wanted to. And now, for the very first time since the advent of the internet, we've moved backwards. We've moved backwards in our ability to see the, the, the data collection, aggregation, utilization is it's being reversed. And what's going to happen, I think, and if I actually was ever right about anything, I'd be a much wealthier person. But if I were to attempt prognostication, what I would say is this is going to usurp 
the, the hierarchical structure. So right now you have people that have, have spent decades building themselves to the top and they've done that. They, they sit upon a mountain of data that's about to go away. So this is the opportunity to reset and it's yeah. going to happen through honestly this, what you're doing now, quality content, it's going to happen through quality content, community building, because the, 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 the lead, the industry leaders are about to lose the faucet that they've had for the last decade. And all of the commoditization of traffic is about to get just reset overnight. It's going to be really fun to watch. It's sad because it, it hurts some businesses, but it helps agency owners. So I'm, <laughs> and, I'm right and, away. Yeah. And people, like you said, that have lot live content you know what one yep. of the things people ask me why i do so many lives and have so many live shows is that there is no data involved it it's just a community and an engagement in the community that then can be shared by the community not by the platform or by the modalities that have regulations and as long as they give you the ability which they want because there's free content for them and it may be their only vehicles everything becomes more exponentially valuable like this show or the lives that I do. And so, uh, man, keep talking fast, keep thinking fast because we haven't had a guest that's so on top of what they're talking about with data behind it. Uh, go ahead, Blaine. We, we, we need yeah. your perspective. I mean, Kasim, I love how you're moving awesome. this thing. And I we love know, awesome. Remember, awesome. We're, we're not going awesome. to have to kick his ass afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. It strikes me that what you're talking about is a migration from control of data to a more elegant control of the gateway. Hmm. And if, if you're controlling the gateway, which isn't the same as controlling the data, it's actually right. controlling. David, I mean, you know, when you you and I are generating content, that's a gateway move. Yeah. yeah. And, and then selecting you know, Apple as a platform, you know, some of the work we're going to be doing. But it's not about the data set as much as it is about actually paying attention to the, you know, you know and this is why Oculus is such a, you know, a brilliant play in part, you know, for, for Meta. It's a right. gateway move. Yeah. And so I think there's a question embedded there. So I'm going to yeah. let you figure out what the question is. Well, so here's what, what's interesting about it is, is think about all of the parties that are involved in your ability to access this channel right now, right? So you're on a device, you're on your computer, your laptop, your tablet, your phone, your whatever. So that device is a participant. Then that device is connecting through the internet, an ISP. So maybe it's through your mobile provider. Maybe it's through, you know, Cox Communications Quest, whatever. Now, already we have this tandem symbiotic relationship, but then you also have to access a browser. So maybe you're watching on LinkedIn or you're watching through Chrome or you're watching through Safari. And then via the browser, you're, you're watching through StreamYard, which is kind of behind the scenes, but it's, it's so we, we've sewn this all together. And up until this point, that pipe of visibility has been completely transparent. Well, all of a sudden what happened is all these companies started saying like, why am I giving you anything? So they're, they're playing Alamo. They're like, I'm building a wall here. I'm building a wall here. I'm sending you the minimal viable information that I possibly can because the more data that I own, the, the stronger I am. And what's funny is nobody, nobody realizes where the power plays are. Google, I, 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 I still, and I'm a, I own a Google ads agency, so I'm, I'm partial here. People think that Google's like, oh, it's like, oh, Google, Facebook, TikTok, you know, when it goes to buying traffic, nothing could be further from the truth. If you look at the size of the Google ecosystem compared to the size of the Facebook ecosystem, Google is a leviathan. Facebook has 55,000 demographic and psychographic profiling factors. And you're like, oh, wow, that's a lot. Google has 72 million. Google knows, think about this for a minute. Google is, isn't just a search engine. 
Google is also Google Analytics. Google's 99% of all front-facing websites host Google. Google is Gmail, the second largest, or no, the largest free email provider on the planet. It's YouTube, the second largest search engine, the largest video repository. Um, it's Google Apps. Google knows what my children look like because of Google Photos. Google knows where you go and whether or not you speed because of Google Maps. Google told a woman she was pregnant before she knew in April of 2015. This is six years ago. Think about the speed at which machine learning moves based solely off of research and, and, and communication patterns. Google know this guy, Google knew this guy was pregnant. Google knows who's in Narcotics Anonymous. It knows who's a felon. It knows who's cheating on their taxes. Google knows everything about you. This data, there's a reason that legislators are worried about this. This data aggregation play allows them to predict intent. And to the point that, Dave, that Blaine just made, what people are doing, all the major you know, conglomerates in the space is they're starting to try to compact this because it's a power play. And whoever has the data has the intent and whoever has the tent makes the money. And, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in mass because this will have to come to a head. And so many of them, Google's terrified of an antitrust suit. It's why it doesn't let anybody use this data visibly front facing. It's all behind the scenes, behind the smoke screen um, from a machine learning perspective. So I'm, I'm, excited, but also really nervous about the way this plays out because you're going to see major organizations usurped the way that we saw Facebook usurped. And you, as we block and individualize micro influence, uh, which has this democratization, not only of business, but of data, uh, it seems to me that the individual now even has more power and we are actually usurping the power from the big aggregate companies, corporate conglomerates, because they don't have the ability to manipulate the information and they don't have the ability to create authentic frequency or authentic content. And so therefore exponentially, you know, people who have great ideas individually have much more power to build a community and to monetize their community than even the largest brands on earth that can throw as much money as they want, but without knowing the spectrum of people to communicate with will have far less statistical success than, and it's a cause and effect game in my opinion. It's like thoughts create, thoughts are your cause. Well, now the democratization provides great ideas are the cause, not big companies and marketing dollars is the cause. No, you nailed it, David. So the riches are in the niches. And large organizations can't niche down. They, they, it's not it's not a scalable model for them. So the more people niche down and the more specific they get with their content, their targets, their avatars, who they're speaking to, the more successful they're going to be. That's why social media has taken off the way it has, because you get to connect with individuals that that on micro levels are aligned with you know interests that you have and, and in niches that we've seen get so specific and so particular, but whole industries have, have cropped up around them. It's amazing. It's and, unbelievable. And Costum, we're going to have to have you back as well. But I guess I yeah, tell you, well, all I can think about when you said that is um, Dr. Pimple Popper, right? I, I market the pro football. <laughs> I, mar I, market I the knew pro you were going to go fame. there. I knew yeah. you were going to do that. It, it has to, though, because, you know, I market the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which is the most popular sport two to one in America. And this woman, Dr. Pimple Popper, has more subscribers on YouTube than all of the Hall of Fame combined because the riches are in the niches. And that, Although football has many viewers and impressions and, you know, probably the best weekend ever last weekend of the NFL content that's ever been created on TV uh, and repurposed all throughout. Yet that didn't help the Hall of Famers 
And yet Dr. Pimple Popper still has her Bravo TV show and millions of subscribers. So I want to get more into depth. We have many other shows as well. Uh, but man, when we get the real deal on the show and we're two for two today, the insight that you gave, I'm hoping everyone watches this. I'm going to again, because you yeah. just gave a wealth of knowledge to everyone and you're not talking too fast. It's that you had to get in all that you know in a very short amount of time. So please come back and let's do some other shows together, man. You're amazing. Appreciate you both. Thanks, fellas. Awesome. 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 Great. Love it. Awesome. Awesome. That's awesome. all I got to awesome. say. All right. Only wow. one here, only one here I feel sorry for is a sheep. Yes. <laughs> I love the content. Hey, that, that's okay. She's tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm stepping on stage after John Maxwell and Jesse Itzler. So I know what you feel like right now being <laughs> the third uh, up here because these guests have been extraordinary. President and CEO of Bug Crowd and uh, in the uh, cybersecurity world, again, you know, as Awesome was suggesting, the world has changed completely, uh, but also the responsibility that we all have uh, in all levels from individuals to mid-size, small, and of course, the big companies, uh, you know, this SaaS-based all-in-one cybersecurity platform that you have is going to be the future. And so I'd love to start out with the same question I kind of asked Awesome is, you know, in the last 24 months, you uh, have not only a ridiculous amount of change in the space, but I think even more importantly, from the mass content of TV, movies, internet, the awareness of how important cybersecurity is has reached an exponential high. Absolutely right. Yeah, and the dependence on these digitally connected devices just went up when we went remote. Right. It's, ah. it's amazing. Um, you know, you were talking about democratization of data. We think democratization of skills, democratization of access to these skills, and democratization of the learnings that certain folks that can pay high bug bounties for a certain bug and taking that information and making it available to the rest of the community uh, makes us that much more safer, right? So Bug Crowd, us as a company, have over... Uh, well, several hundreds of thousands of researchers around the world. And we bring them based on their skills and their trust level that they've built on our platform to help customers find security vulnerabilities. So think about that. It's match.com meets cybersecurity meets talent shortage. And we do that by enabling this democratization of all the things we just talked about. The... The inability to actually enable that, I mean, because there, there's been a very interesting rise, not in data breaches, those have significantly been, you know, a part of our life for some time, but ransomware attacks, and you're specifically sure. focusing, I think, on that, and there, yeah, it's one thing to have my data out there, it's another thing to have my data held hostage that I, such that I can't do anything. Yeah. What, what are you, yeah, obviously it, it's uh, profitable to do this, but what else is behind this and what can be done more specifically to minimize it? It's a great question. We just put together a report. We do it every year inside the mind of a hacker. You know, how do hackers really think? Because we think about hackers as the digital natives who have decided to become locksmiths, right? Instead of thieves. So we are, those are the ones that are, are on our platform. They morally agreed to find and help 
customers fix things. In this report from last year, ransomware was absolutely the top thing that customers were worried about and the thing that we helped our customers resolve. And to that end, I think the key here is uh, just finding things faster, but prioritizing them in a way that the customer knows what to fix. Because there's always going to be bugs in pretty much every software, right? I was an engineer, probably wrote some buggy software that's still running on some of those printers <laughs> I wrote uh, code on. But it wasn't the, the benefit of breach was not as high as the cost of breaching that, right? Today, the benefit of breach is huge and ransomware makes it that much more possible. And what we do is we give that two minute advantage because our cus customers are looking for people who look at different techniques, use different techniques to find what could be possible for a nefarious actor to create a ransomware situation. But before it can be done, they find out about it and they close that door. If uh, we do our jobs right and they do their jobs right as well. And, you know, one of the things that I constantly think about is prioritization. Uh, there's so many areas of attack, of vulnerability, of different levels of personal and professional exposure that we have. Nobody talks about how do we prioritize uh, the areas which we protect, the areas that we're most vulnerable. Uh, do you have any uh, advice to people on how they make that decision on where to prioritize their resources to protect mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah, in fact, we do that for our customers. So we look at the attack surface first, and then we say, what is the exposure of that attack surface and the harm that can be done if that attack surface is taken down? Right? So if it's a website with an e-commerce site, you know, with PII data, probably pretty, pretty important. So if you find a bug on that, and Log4j was running around right now, as you all might have heard, uh, if you yeah. find a bug or a log, you're susceptible to Log4j, that gets a pretty high priority because that gives uh, basic data to the nefarious actor. Uh, we've got hundreds of customers on our platform, close to thousands, uh, a thousand. And I'll tell you, 75 of our own customers are used in my household every day whether it be a network, whether it be a car, whether it be a refrigerator, switches, obviously computers, telephones. So I can't give you the names of our customers, but you get a general idea. I've got three kids. My whole idea, thought process is, how do we make it safer so that my kids' information doesn't get breached, right? Yeah. So when we give information to these customers, we make it a pretty, uh, we make a contextually important prioritization for them so they know exactly what to focus in on. Because at the end of the day, customers are looking for four things. Return on investment and then security spend. That's a given. You have to take care of it. Security risk, which is the second thing. The two that are always opposing this is time to market and knowing what to fix, right? Because mm -hmm. both those things are important to a business. So if we can help them get secure product out to market faster, they win, we win. If we can help them fix the bugs in a timely manner, and this is why I would say to all your customers, when you get an update, when you see a little sign on Google Chrome which says update, or you see your phone and it says you need to update it, please go ahead and update it. That's one thing that you can do to save yourself because 
there's people yeah. who are working really hard to secure your environment as well. Yeah, and, and just you know, just real quick, and I know that we're you know running short on time here. The the whole Internet of Things phenomena. I'll just call it a phenomenon. I mean, we've got more more you know, connected devices than there are people on this planet by a significant number. And I mean, I know my you know, the, the smart refrigerator talks to my server. <laughs> so, um, I mean, the, the vulnerabilities there are very interesting. You know, and that and they're out of sight, out of mind for most people because I don't think of my my refrigerator as a security risk. Typically, it, it is a huge security risk. And Blaine, have you been reading Inside the Mind of a Hacker? Because <laughs> yeah. last year we had talked about this. So here's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the world of Microsoft. I worked at Microsoft. And we spent yeah. a lot of time building an operating system that was very, very robust, right? IoT does not have robust operating systems. So they're trying right. to get the most amount of power out of the least amount of overhead. So what we find is that the linkages between an IoT device, which is typically connected to some sort of a digital asset, maybe a website, a mobile device, or some sort of a server in your case, becomes an incredible point of entry into insanely valuable information that sits on the devices these IoT things are connected to, right? We've all heard about the target thing. Somebody got in from a HVAC system and got to the point of sale yeah. system to get all that data, right? Okay. We see yep. this happen all the time. I'll just give you an example. Uh, we have a company that does uh, uh, security cameras for the homes, companies, whatever, right? And they had always thought about the fact that the camera's up there, nobody's going to really dismantle the camera and connect some leads to it and find bugs. Well, one of our researchers pops the camera open in front of the head of engineering, adds two little wires, and out comes a P1, which is a priority one bug, through which they get access to some information that you did not want them to get access to. Now, this was an ethical hacker, and that ethical hacker did this to make all of us safer. But the point really is, is that that weakest link can give access to some of the strongholds of data and back doors that you don't want opened up. And that's what our research customers find. Yeah. So if you got a ring ring doorbell, watch out. If you have anything connected, watch out. Uh, Ashish, you lived up uh, to the lineup today. And I already know my takeaway of the day, which is we should have a longer show because these guests uh, have some serious quantitative impact in what we're doing for all of our viewers. And what a blessing blessing it's been to have you here. We'll have you back as well. I think we'll just put a repeat, Matt. We got <laughs> yeah, on this that's a good idea. You know, everybody else, everybody else does uh, you know, this could be office hours too. Uh, so it'd be good. Exactly. You know, we could be like the Marvel series, you know, like the next world. <laughs> anyway. I'll tell you what, get some of our researchers on your program too, because they'll tell you the inside baseball yeah. cybersecurity as well. That'd be fun. Yeah. Well, we, we're definitely having you back as well. Bug Crowd, check it out. Website, bugcrowd.com. Ashish, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Great meeting with you. Great Wonderful. You. I love this show. We were talking today I about, take, you know, we're doing this for TV as well. We have the Apple TV, Bloomberg. Uh, no doubt why it's successful. But, you know, I watch a lot of content and. I'm blessed to be here because not only do I get to learn from you, Blaine, um, 
but also, you know, these guests are just extraordinary. Um, but they don't get to display that uh, amazing intelligence and experience without the right questions. And, you know, it's so much fun to hear you. Uh, and I'm like, oh, great question. And then, you know, I, lo I love, you know, just the authentic reaction. Hey, that's a, I'm curious about that too, Dave. Uh, so it's really fun to do this with you, uh, which is why people should learn from us and through us. Learn.blameoutlet.com forward slash LMM. Takeaway for the day real quick. Then I got to go jump on the stage here. You got to get on the stage. Uh, I'm going to just go with story. I mean, you know, all three of our people uh, today, guess, were great storytellers. And, and, and it's through the use of story that uh, information lands you know, so that I can actually you know, do something with it. Uh, you know, too often, you know, talking heads are just you know, you know, tossing out data points without a narrative behind it that actually captures me. So I just want to take my hat off to all three of them. And uh, invite you know, our listeners today to pay attention to the stories that you tell and how you tell you know, what it is that you think is important from a narrative perspective. I love it. And mine's related to that. You know, besides knowing the biggest takeaway that we should have a longer show, uh, more importantly, uh, its lessons are tied to the stories. What you know, it's one thing to be a storyteller, but it's not authentic or it's overselling, back end selling lying, manipulating, or cheating with the stories, but these are people that are of service, compassionate yeah, capitalists, yeah. merchant servants. They're of service and of value to everyone. And so I'll take your lesson a step farther and say, not only is it a story to tell, but it's the lessons that we've learned and are able to share and able to hear. Uh, so share and hear are so important. Anyway, uh, Blaine, I can't tell you how grateful I am as always to see you every Thursday. Uh, I'm blessed to have this show, but more importantly, blessed to have you in my life. Learn.blainebartlett.com forward slash LMM, the great Blaine Bartlett. Joining me, Dave Meltzer, here on Office Hours. Thank you. Everybody, love you. Love playing with you. And I'm going to see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, great show. I'll see you next week, too. So thank you. you. All right, everyone. I got to jump. I'm here at Growth Stack Conference here in Atlanta, Georgia. The great John Maxwell, Jesse Isler, and many, many others, Craig Siegel, Jen Gottlieb, uh, very exciting uh, to be here. But remember, most importantly, everyone, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks.